Can we consider news simply as reality converging to a report? Or put in another way, it's possible to consider news as the hierarchical, objective and understandable exposition of facts delivered to the receiver as close as possible to reality in a narrative form, right? Sure, but there are severe issues that can subvert and cripple this concept. In this episode, communication experts will help us understand what is news and how it can be used to inform, but also to devise, distort and manipulate reality. Welcome to Switchpoint, a harm reduction podcast. Episode 1, The Anti-News. The very notion of reality is a narrative of interactions produced on a daily basis by everything we read, see, or hear, and also by what we produce, reproduce, and share. From face-to-face -face interactions to the mediation of technological communications devices, we are always sharing, interacting. And although we cannot reduce the explanation of what is real to what is experienced and disseminated by the media, It holds a central position in the construction and mediation of what is considered real. It is one of the main pieces in the processing of facts, ideas, values and beliefs. Interactive platforms also allow us an unprecedented kind of immersion in an environment full of possibilities, but also vulnerabilities. We find ourselves inserted in an informational environment full of excesses where the context is usually slippery or non-existent. But let's start with the basics. What is news? Well, the origin of the term news is the proper meaning of the word news. That is, uh, what is new? What do you have to tell me about the daily things? I think this idea is important to understand the fake news scenery. In journalism theory, we have a specific concept of news. News is the main representative journalistic piece, is the product of the journalistic job to get data, documents, interviews, and other factual things to tell a story. This is Thais Saibet, award-winning Brazilian journalist, professor and researcher linked to the University of Vale do Rio dos Sinos. In the journalistic sense, news cannot be fake because uh, the journalistic process requires accuracy. In the journalistic sense, news is a text or audio or video which tells an accurate and verified story is a story based on facts and correct data. Truth From Old English means faith, fidelity, loyalty, quality of being true, promise, covenant. The meaning of the word truth is concretely linked to a commitment to the real in close agreement with the accuracy of reality and the veracity of what has occurred or what is happening. Lie is a word of an uncertain etymology, with possible Old Norse and Old Church Slavic related, but already found with the meaning of speaking falsely, telling a lie with the purpose of deceiving. 
Truth and lie are two poles that coexist and measure forces in the human trajectory. Human history is a collection of narratives, events, ideas, perceptions, knowledge, and also information existing and sharing. Even with the limitation of the senses, societies developed based on the production and sharing of information, whether factual or imaginary, in its quest to understand and define reality. Especially in this multiple, interactive, instantaneous and still new informational environment in which we are living, reality can be presented, represented and signified in different ways, just as truth can be subverted, extrapolated and questioned. Even under a condition of belief, or even conditioned, subordinated or restricted, including in a misleading or non-objective way or contextually fragmented, creating difficulties to be interpreted and verified, far from the notion of truth that we assume and want to know. That's what Bill Kovac and Tom Rosenstiel teach us in the book The Elements of Journalism. The authors conceptualize truth as a statement of what is the most likely in proportion to the evidence currently available. So truth, like reality, seems to have the ability to change over time. And that makes sense, because it needs to be refined and interpreted. But all that considered, what was the significance of news in development of societies? The significance is variable along the time. I like the historic typology of journalism praxis from Charron and Bonville. They are Canadian researchers who investigated the news changing in North America by ideal types concepted by the social significance of the news in each period. In the beginning, at the 17th century, newspapers were just vehicles to publish regular communications about weather, navigation service, and other government notes. That period represents the ideal type journalism of transmission. After, in the 18th century, newspapers were used to disseminate political ideas, social campaigns in favor of social rights and freedom. That period is the journalism of opinion. In the 20th century, we see the media industry increase beside the capitalism system and democratic stabilization. These changes were fundamental to journalism professionalization and is in this context that the journalist's sense of news was built. Journalists took off their opinions or political speech and put on practices to produce texts based on facts. This is the journalism of information. In the finals of 20th century, Around 1980s, the increasing channel and rising public segmentation, uh, the authors observed another change. To get an audience, news needs to be interesting. Also to inform, they need to entertain the public. Journalists need to stay near to the audience as friends. It is the ideal type, journalism of communication. 
Communication in the sense of conversation and interpersonal communication is in that context that news starts to lose social significance as a factual story. The social media in the 21th century intensified this problem. I think that demand for news was always relevant in history, considering the specific sense of news and journalism in each historic period. Nowadays, maybe the great question is, what point in history did demand for facts and correct data become a relevant part of people's lives and public opinion? The post-truth meaning, according to the Oxford Dictionary, says that post-truth is a context when personal feelings and personal beliefs are more relevant than facts to make decisions. I'm not sure if it is completely new. Maybe what is different is the unmediated media access. It is people can find more channels that reproduce their own beliefs. Uh, this is the, the danger nowadays. Uh, this is the reason we need to differentiate news based on facts from fake news. Not all of which are published in the internet devices are real news. Many authors argue that fake news is an oxymoron, because if the content is fake, it cannot be considered news. But what we popularly call fake news is a complex phenomenon of informational disorder involving misinformation, a false misleading information, and disinformation, a consciously deceptive, manipulative information. Professor Leticia Bodhi from Georgetown University explains the meaning of those terms. Um, so these two terms are used sometimes interchangeably, but generally speaking, when we talk about misinformation, we're talking about something that is not true, not factually accurate, um, and that is shared by someone unintentionally. So they, they may have distributed it without knowing that it was false. Um, disinformation, on the other hand, is information that is false, but that is intentionally distributed as false information. So disinformation is on purpose, right? This is an information campaign, an information operation. Um, that is trying to mislead someone, um, whether at, a, at an elite level or at a mass level, whereas misinformation is not necessarily um, nefar intentionally nefarious. It's not trying to mislead. It's just someone didn't realize that it was not true. Melissa Zindars, professor of communication and media at Merrimack College, also help us to understand that these concepts are not absolutely stationary. So oftentimes information starts out as disinformation and then people unknowingly share that and it becomes misinformation. Um, and so that's when, you know, something appears on, on Facebook and people start sharing it. Um, so they're not out generally with a, a particular goal in mind of that one bit of information, but they're, you know, uh, helping those falsehoods and those uh, forms of disinformation spread unwittingly, usually. In her book, Fake News, Understanding Media and Misinformation in the Digital Age, Melissa adds that fake news is a purposefully crafted, sensational, 
emotionally charged, misleading or totally fabricated information that mimics the form of mainstreaming news. Following this line of thought, Northwestern University researcher Nathan Walter notes that fake news can be considered a large category of informational disorder. Because if you go back to history, like the you know, hunter-gatherer society, where the main medium is oral, right, conversation, or something that you can somehow explain to other people that live with you, misinformation is costly if you tell your tribe there's a lot of food somewhere and when you go there there's actually lions and half of the people are eaten you're going to be punished immediately but then we see when for instance books or newspapers become the main medium then misinformation is a little it's like a show right it's like a circus it might be true it might be false read it enjoy it this idea that sometimes to make a good story you don't have to be so accurate so this is also changes gradually and i think that now we're entering a new era with deep fakes uh, already entered a new era with deep fakes where we really need to be more careful According to the Spanish journalist, writer, and fake news expert, Marco Moros Garcia, disinformation, despite appearing to be something absolutely contemporary, is a phenomenon that has always followed the human trajectory. You can read his full interview at our website, switchpointpodcast.com. He affirms that fake news is just the stories that help build opinions. It can make a part of society think in a particular way but based only on information that is false. Therefore, fake news has always existed and it's not something that is particular to the 21st century. What is unique to the 21st century is the ecosystem in which these misinformations are produced and reproduced. Actually, the news have been contested since the beginning. There were many conspiracy theories that spread ideas of news manipulation in favor of political or economic interests in the past. Misinformation is not a contemporary problem. Uh, there are cases related since ancient history, in the Roman Empire, for example. Nero was guilty about the fire in Rome, but historians discovered that the, he probably wasn't in there when the incident happened. He had a plan to reform the ancient city rejected, so it was convenient to put the guilt of the fire in Nero. Another case is a famous claim commonly attributed to the Princess Maria Antonietta during the French Revolution. If there is no bread, they eat brioche, something like this. Uh, this story was published by Rousseau, without any reference about Maria Antonieta, but she has been she had been frequently criticized in the opinion journals because of her extravagant behavior. So uh, the story was spreaded as a fact, as a real claim, 
that never was pronounced by the princes. These two cases are most related to political things, but we have examples of fantastic stories, like the vegetable lamb, a legend that could explain the secret of Indian cotton lambs, which were born in trees. The story made many travelers in the Middle Age went to the region searching for lamb trees. Also, opinion surveys along the time had ever pointed that some people or some social group or political party adopted the news. Uh, it's not a new phenomenon, but probably the impact is bigger nowadays because there are more offer of channels where people can spread their doubt about the news and politicians and celebrities and social media influencers, I mean public figures who have great influence in the public opinion, legitimize these doubts and all the time in their channels, which have much, much more reach than journalistic channels. And it is not only about media or journalism, but also about science as the pandemic is showing us every day, especially in Brazil, where public figures defend uh, treatment without scientific evidence. Even talk, scientists and the news contest and show data and facts in opposition to these medicines. The way we produce and consume news has been profoundly affected by the process of capitalist development. The German philosopher Walter Benjamin claims that the emergence of modernity and the capitalist industrial production mode caused a crisis in the traditional forms of knowledge transmission, culminating in the death of the traditional narrative based on lived and shared experiences. According to Mark Amoros, in the 20th century, mass communication became the communication paradigm and made it possible to distinguish public opinion from published opinion. Published opinion was what the media defended or said based on the information that was given. A different thing was the public opinion that was formed in the societies based on that information. What happened in the 20th century is that on many occasions public opinion and published opinion could be linked. Thais Saibet adds, because capitalism is one of the factors to development of the news as a practice to tell stories based on facts. The principles of objectivity, uh, verification, true, uh, began to take place when capitalism, besides democracy, promoted newspapers' owners to structure their business as a commercial activity. To avoid advertisers rejecting pay to publishing their newspapers because of political opinion, uh, they changed the style of newspaper contents. Uh, in the United States, you have the penny press movement around uh, 1830. These popular newspapers started to structure the media business or journalism business financed by advertisement. The newspaper began to be a vehicle to get consumers. Uh, it was the main funding source of journalism for centuries. And of course, it has generated conflicts around the history of journalism. I mean, uh, topics that 
this or those newspapers cover or not cover because of economic pressures. At the same time, this business model was fundamental to professionalization of journalists. I mean, uh, journalists were people who had other occupations. Writing in newspapers was a secondary activity, in part because it wasn't a paid activity. When newspapers needed contracted professionals, they began to build a professional culture. With moral, ideological, economic motivations or a mixture of all of these reasons, the promoters of disinformation have already learned that it's very efficient to misleadingly reformulate genuine content. So in terms of people who are creating it, um, sometimes it is purely financial. Um, other times I do think it's ideological and political. Um, and then I think morality probably, you know, encompasses both of those. Um, but I think it, it varies a lot based on the kind of disinformation. Um, and then of course, people choose to share that as misinformation um, based on all kinds of different motivations. So it's, it's hard, you can't really just pick one. It depends on the, the content creators um, and, and the context in which people are sharing. In some cases, just economical reasons. You just want to get more views. You want to get more people following you. So you know that the best way to do it is to create your own content. And this content can be false. Just like there's so, much motiva so many different motivations for why people adopt fake news and believe fake news, there's many motivations why people share fake news. Social media is a new communication structure, just as TV and radio were once. They are actors of a paradigm shift, multiple senders and sharers for countless receivers. The individual who used to only receive the information now is interacting with the media, and the information becomes from many to many in an environment where any user is also a potential content producer. And this directly interferes with the quality and credibility of the information that comes into circulation. I think one of the reasons that we're talking so much, much about misinformation and disinformation right now is because of social media. So we know that the growth of social media has had a negative impact on traditional news organizations. So, you know, digital advertising revenue gets gobbled up by giant companies, uh, global companies like Google and Facebook, which means that news organizations around the world, um, if they're for profit and driven through driven by advertising or by subscriptions, they're getting a smaller, smaller slice of of the pie. And so their profits go down. Um, and that means news organizations are closing up. They're doing you know, trying to sustain themselves with a limited budget. So because of this, um, because we have, you know, less quality news um, and news that's competing with less savory actors, it creates kind of a, a perfect storm on social media um, where, you know, people just wait to stumble across whatever their friends are sharing or whatever random, you know, 
thing that might follow that pops up in their feed one day. So we're not, you know, picking up a newspaper or, or you know, turning on a, a broadcast television episode and getting, you know, a snapshot of news. Instead, we're getting random story here, random story there. Um, and these stories are published by, you know, an infinite number of different sources. And um, we tend to look more at, at the headline, the topic, than we do the source. Um, then, of course, social media is a really cheap way to distribute information. Um, so, you know, bad actors that start up um, a website, um, like in the United States, Breitbart is my favorite one um, to point out. It uh, shares and generates traffic through Facebook, despite continually violating Facebook's standards um, and policies. And their posts, uh, each of their posts gets thousands of likes and uh, comments. Um, and that drives traffic back to their website. So social media absolutely facilitates the spread of disinformation and misinformation um, and in about a dozen different ways. According to Marco Moros, the democratization of information dissemination now allows any sender to issue any type of information with no journalistic ethics or any filter involved. Expanding on what Melissa Zimdars explained to us, Professor Leticia Bodhi talked about the role of social networks in the informational ecosystem. I do think it's correct to say that a significant portion of the population uses social networks as a main source of information, um, but I think that that is not most of the population. So I want to be clear about that. So a Pew survey from this summer shows that 48% of American adults say they get news from social media at least sometimes. So about half of the Americans are saying they get news from social media sometimes, that's not necessarily um, as a main source of information. 19% of those people say they're getting news from social media often. So that gets closer to, the, to being a main source of information, although again, that's not quite what that's measuring. Um, so I would say it's a minority of people that are getting information from social media exclusively or even mostly, um, but that, that is still a significant source of news and information. Um, and that can be particularly true for people that don't necessarily consume news through other media. Um, compared to information that comes from journalism, kind of what we think of traditional media, social networks are more likely to be sources of, of misinformation just because they're not subject to the same gatekeeping and systematic verification that traditional journalism is. Um, having said that, there are all sorts of ways that people get misinformed outside of both traditional journalism and social media. So you can be misinformed talking to your neighbor, you can be misinformed by a politician um, or by a celebrity. So there are all sorts of ways that you can be misinformed um, that are outside of those two um, elements. All this happens in an environment that is not at all favorable to the media. There's a number of things that, that they could do. Uh, for example, if, if bad actors are violating their terms and conditions, um, they should apply their rules the same to anybody else. So uh, an organization like Breitbart should no longer be on the platform if they're continually breaking the rules of the platform. Um, so that's one thing. 
Um, I do think a lot of issues stems toward uh, the different communication and tech policies in different countries. Um, Increasingly, Facebook and Twitter and Google act much more like media publishers, um, deciding what content we see or don't see, yet they're treated as just neutral platforms. Um, and so I think the, the policy world, the governmental policies and regulating these companies um, has a lot of catching up to do in order to force these companies to do the right thing. Um, and what the right thing might look like could take a lot of different forms. I think even new platforms that emerge, um, like WhatsApp and Telegram um, and others where, um, you know, researchers like me and journalists um, and, and people who are monitoring this stuff that, that we're seeing communication move into these areas that we cannot observe, ob observe. And so that throws a wrench in it. But then you keep adding on um, and new technologies like deep fakes or auto-generating, for example, fake news stories, um, and that can make it harder for people to to try to assess them. Um, but I would say I think technology to identify, you know, AI stories and deep fakes also is is there. So hopefully, um, you know, it'd be kind of like an arms race, an information arms race in terms of of those more sophisticated uh, forms of fake content. Big techs control the social networks, which act not always in a complementary and collaborative way to the journalistic practice but often as the main disseminators of information, without concern for credibility, verification and investigation of what is disseminated. Marka Moros explains that nowadays, information has the ability to be personalized based on interests. In the 20th century, it was produced a series of information that was the same for everyone. There was mass communication. A few disseminators produced information for many people at the same time. What the 21st century and the digital environment allows is a series of senders to disseminate information in an individualized way of information consumption. That also creates eco-chambers and information bubbles. An eco-chamber can be defined as an ideological effect in which information, ideas or beliefs are amplified or reinforced by communication and reputation with a defined set generating a common sense that is reinforced through the continuous circulation between people of similar ideas or mentalities. This eco-chamber creates a social bubble, an environment in which a person only finds beliefs or opinions that coincide with their own, in a way that erases alternatives or opposing ideas. Why the tools used for dissemination and exchange of information continue to evolve and social networks continue to feel the tendency of people to share unverified information, it becomes increasingly urgent to know how to differentiate news from opinion, to read critically, to verify authorship and intent, and to seek out if responsible sources also publish the same information before sharing. 
a free and pluralist press and independent journalism are still indispensable to democratic societies. So the idea of the echo chamber is maybe the greatest myth about social media. Um, this is a widespread idea. I think it resonates with a lot of people. It particularly resonates with um, people in journalism and academia because we are probably the people most likely to witness echo chambers um, because we are crazy politically engaged compared to the average person which means we're seeing a lot more political information and that information is going to be engaging to us in particular ways that um, algorithmic curation will favor in the future. So we might be most subject to echo chambers. The best evidence that we have suggests that echo chambers for most people are actually quite rare. So most people are actually not exposed to news at all through social media, as we discussed earlier, right? Um, a majority of people say that they're not really seeing news on social media and the people that do see news tend to see information from both sides. So based on information from um, Twitter networks, based on information from digital trace data collected from survey participants, um, we see that people are consuming people that are consuming news and that are consuming political news, which is a relatively small portion of the population see information from uh, media outlets that come from both the left and the right. I think the aspect of instant messaging applications and social networks that makes them most, um, most fertile for disseminating disinformation is, um, and, and in research we often call these affordances, so affordances of the platform, characteristics, aspects, ways that they get used, that make them subject to this um, particular uh, issue. I think the biggest issue is they are specifically designed to help information travel quickly and easily. Um, and we want that to be true as users. We want relevant information um, and helping information travel quickly and easily helps us get uh, information that is relevant to us. It turns out that timeliness um, and novelty, both of which are related to how new information is um, and therefore how quickly it spreads, um, are very important elements of relevance. So when you're designing an algorithm, for instance, to maximize relevance, important aspects of that algorithm are probably going to be how new the information is. Um, so that's not, that's not inherently a bad thing, but in order for information to travel quickly and easily, it can't be subject to significant barriers. So the barriers like moderation, content moderation, or um, you know, administrators looking at content before it gets posted, verification procedures. So we don't, ha we don't have the ability to fact check information if we want to get it really quickly. Um, those two things can't really happen simultaneously. Um, by definition, those kinds of things are going to slow down the flows of information. And the thing that we as users like about social media is that it's, it's very slippery, right? The information can travel very easily in it, and that gives us a better user experience in terms of how quickly we get relevant information for us. Um, but it has this unfortunate side effect that it, it also makes it very easy for misinformation to spread. So, why do people share these false informations? 
sometimes that's because the truth is boring. Um, you know, when we get a bit of false information, it might be salacious or, you know, there's something about it that just tends to capture our imaginations and attention. Um, so that's why, you know, a false story can just take off like wildfire. Um, people are outraged or excited or whatever it may be. But then when you do like a, a correction or, or a fact-checked piece on that, um, it tends to go slowly because it's just not as exciting uh, to people. They're not, you know, emotionally uh, inspired to share it. So I, again, I think a lot of it isn't, you know, it's because, you know, when we're on social media, our critical thinking skills, we're not, we're not scrolling on high alert for for falsehoods we're scrolling because we're bored for fun um because that's where our friends are and so i think you know we have to acknowledge that people are are using these platforms in in a kind of a leisurely way and so if information you know captures our attention we'll share it um the same kind you know information correcting that just might not capture our attention in the same way so a lot of it again has to do with emotion rather than sort of rational thought or intellect or anything like that. Professor Tay Saibit adds, People don't fall for fake news because it is fake. People have their own beliefs and it is much more convidative falling and sharing something that confirms your beliefs. Emotional appeal is another point. Um, people are moved by emotion instinctively we are moved by emotion. The rational process requires reflection, thinking, and ripening. Uh, the social media time is instantaneous. You need to answer fast. The interactivity is in real time. So, how can we effectively avoid fake news? Our guest explained what could be done to mitigate the effects of informational disorders and how to protect ourselves from it. Well, we need to stop and think. We need to doubt our own beliefs. If something is so good to be true, it is possible that it is not true. We need to ask, uh, why it is in my timeline right now? Is it really true? We need to find other sources and compare. Social media uh, will not change. They probably never will provide just confirmed posts because it isn't their purpose. And we probably can't take out social media of our lives because social and professional contexts require that we stay there. So. We need to understand the structure and develop a critical behavior. I, I don't think that it's going to be enough to come up with a technological solution, like something that, um, something that the media can do or an algorithm like Facebook is using to tag false information. I think it's part of the solution. I don't think that it's the whole solution. I think that really to solve this problem, we need to invest much more in education. So at some point as a society, we decided that to be a functioning member in our society, people need to learn how to read, write, and have some basic arithmetic skills. 
I think that what we realize is that we have a new skill that people will have to learn at an early age it's like to detect bullshit. I think one of the simplest things people can do is just try to read more widely um, and, and to not just, you know, rely on what we stumble across when we're on social media or, um, you know, what our, our friend might share with us. So I think we have to be more active in, in seeking out information. Um, I think we all have to be more active, whether it's individuals or, uh, you know, public funding of high quality information sources. Um, I think th that's actually really important if we're, you know, telling people to, to, you know, practice media literacy and to, um, you know, assess sources. Well, we have to make sure that they're, they have good sources to access. Um, so I think, I think that's important. I think, uh, you know, a varied media diet um, is one of the easiest things that people can do. Um, and another thing that, you know, tends to work really well with my students is when they come across a particular news story, if they find that they're having a really strong emotional reaction to that story, either they're outraged, like, you know, what the hell, or you know, happy or they're experiencing like schadenfreude, um, that usually that's a good idea to uh, look up more information about that story to try to uh, what media literacy experts call uh, triangulating information or engaging in lateral reading. So if a headline just really pops out to you, um, go to other news sources and see what they're reporting on that issue. If no one else is talking about it, that's probably not a good sign. Or if they're talking about it in really different ways or less emotionally charged ways, um, then that's also, you know, that original source is probably not very reliable. I think this is the most important question, right? How do we mitigate the effects of exposure to misinformation and help people do a better job consuming information in a safe and more scientific way? I think that is absolutely the most important question. And that's really what my research tackles, is that question. Um, I think there's no silver bullet here. There, there's not one thing that is going to fix the problem of online misinformation. Instead, I think we need to do lots of things. We need lots of overlapping approaches that will address different aspects of misinformation and misperceptions, which are the belief in mis misinformation, which is really what we worry about. If there's lots of misinformation, nobody believes it's true, that's less concerning than if people uh, see misinformation and say, oh, that's true, that's important. So um, I like to think about this the same way we think about COVID mitigation strategies. So you may have heard of the Swiss cheese model, which is the idea that you have, um, you know, any given approach is going to have some holes in it, but if you line enough of them up, then it will, it will protect against COVID uh, uh, spread. So for example, you need to have people masking, you need to have social distancing, you need to develop vaccines and get people to take them, um, all of those sorts of things. In the same way, we need lots of ways to address misinformation because not a single way is going to do everything that we want to do. Um, so I have an article in the Bulletin of Atomic Sciences with uh, my co-author Emily Vraga of the University of Minnesota that talks about this idea that we need overlapping approaches to misinformation and that includes lots of different 
elements. So platforms can play a role, right? Platforms should be moderating information, at least some. Um, the question of what counts as misinformation and who gets to decide is a really big and important and thorny question. And we should have conversations about that as a society. But certainly one aspect of this needs to come from the platforms where misinformation is circulating. Um, it, we can't put all of this on people. Um, we also need better media literacy ed education. And I think that people are finally taking this seriously um, after kind of um, defunding it for years um, as being part of developing a healthy information ecosystem. We need to have healthy information consumers. So that's a really important aspect of that. And part of that is what's called inoculation, which is trying to protect people against misinformation before they're exposed to it by giving them common ways that people might try to misinform them and help them to think about why people would want to misinform them. So helping them to be a little bit more cynical and skeptical about the kinds of information that are being offered to them. When people really started paying attention to quote unquote fake news, it felt a little bit ahistorical and like it lacked um, political and cultural context. So there was a lot of focus on whether a bit of information was true or false. Um, and one of the arguments um, that you know I and the the many authors who contributed to the book make is that you know it, it's much more than an individual problem uh, and much more than true or false information. What we're witnessing is basically the culmination of of tech companies that have you know not had any oversight that are controlling global flows of information without you know anyone really uh, you know monitoring or regulating it. Um, we also have declines in press freedom, um, in press funding. Um, so you have you know another troubled context in journalism, and then you also have. Uh, you know, these social media spaces where, where people are living a lot of, you know, our, or where a lot of our social and cultural interactions are taking place. So all of these things together create the problem of, of misinformation and disinformation. Um, and the solutions we need are much more systemic and much more, um, I guess structural, so like these really big changes to how information is generated, how it's distributed, um, and then of course we you know we do need more media literacy and digital literacy education starting at a much younger age, um, but you know so we have to pay attention to these these larger um, problems rather than just focusing on band aid solutions like like fact check or a debunk. That's not going to get us very far in the end. We have to do a lot more heavy lifting um, and really look at, um, you know, a lot of <laughs> a lot of the shit that got us here um, that we've been, you know, we've known for a long time around the world that we were on the path towards towards a mess um, with our global information flows, and and now we're experiencing that mess.
we can see throughout this episode what is really news, what might not be, and what is not. And that information of disorders are not a contemporary novelty, but a phenomenon that has reached new proportions and scales in an overconnected society, which, by its very nature, tends to oversaturate our senses and distort notions of facts with the development of an informational ecosystem. That enhances the possibilities of generating, distributing, and consuming information. In this episode, we emphasize that we need to be responsible promoters and non-passive consumers of information. With critical eyes and ears, we need to constantly educate our senses towards what is truthful, has roots and recognizable faces and voices, is less fragmented and more contextualized. We need to be more active and reflective actors in the face of the social phenomena that concerns and affects everyone's existence. Education is always our best choice. You have listened to Switchpoint a harm reduction podcast. We appreciate the participation of Leticia Bodhi, professor in the Communication, Culture and Technology Master's program at Georgetown University. Melissa Zindars, professor of Communication and Media at Merrimack College. Nathan Walter, professor in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. Thais Saibet, professor at the University of Vale do Rio de Sinos. On our website, you can have more information and ways to contact our guests. We are also grateful for the support of Spanish journalist and writer Marca Moros Garcia and our mentor and expert advisor Will Godfrey, founding editor-in-chief of FilterMag.org. Visit our website, switchpointpodcast.com, and check the extra content for this episode, or listen to the previous one. This podcast is produced by C3 Press. The Switchpoint Podcast is founded through a personal global tobacco harm reduction scholarship, awarded by Knowledge Action Change. This work is dedicated to the memory of Kevin Malloy.